We welcome you to the 2021 Eschatology Series, a series that unfolds the power of ancient prophecies. Our series is based on the book of Revelation. Let's get started.
Thank you for joining us today. We know that it is a difficult study reviewing the eschatological facts that unfold the power of God's prophecy in the book of Revelation. There seems to be some great confusion over the second coming of Christ. Many people merge the idea of the rapture and the second coming as one single event. Today we're going to talk about the details of how this is not a biblical fact. Today we're on number 64, and it's called the second coming of Christ. At this point in our study, it is certainly the moment many of us have been waiting for to bring a final blow to the trinity of the evil one. And of course, that's the beast, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. Let's take a look at our scripture for today. We'll be speaking out of Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 19. It states that, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except for himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men, slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. May God bless our scripture for today. Let's take a look at the misnomer of the second coming. Most Christians merge the second coming of Christ with that of the rapture. That ideology is simply not biblical. The rapture is when God's angels gather up the bride and bring them unto Jesus who still is in heaven at that point. 
Then the seven-year reign of the Antichrist begins. At the end of the reign of Satan, it is then that the second coming of Christ occurs. We know that this view is consistent with the method God operates. In Hebrew law, the woman is not to cast her eyes upon the wrath of her husband. Remember when God commanded Lot to tell his wife not to turn around and watch God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And if she did, she would turn to a pillar of salt. This is the mandate enacted here. Through Hebrew law, we can see the time stamping of the rapture first, and then the husband comes to display his wrath upon the non-elect. Now taking a look at Jesus comes in all of his glory. Now the moment many of us have been waiting for is now upon us to bring a final blow to the trinity of the evil one. And of course that is the beast, false prophet, and Satan himself, also known as the Antichrist. Can you imagine this moment? Jesus, our husband, mounted on a white horse, eyes are flames of fire, his head is decorated with many diadems, which is jewels that fill the crown, and a name written on him that only he himself understands. He's wearing a robe dipped in blood, his own blood, and he who follows him? Well, that is none other than an army from heaven, also dressed in white, symbolizing the purity of the groom himself. When Jesus speaks, it is likened to a sword, the word of God, coming out of his mouth. Note that spoken words from his mouth will do the striking down of these nations and the triune of Satan. As he approaches the enemies of God, they begin to see something written on his thigh, which is, King of kings and Lord of lords. How's that for a DNA marker? He's about to kick some serious rump, flaunt his glory, and prove who the real king of kings truly is. The rule of our king is revealed in graphic, powerful imagery. The first thing the followers of Satan will see is what comes from his mouth. A sharp, two-edged sword which is the word of God. However, here we see the sword is inflamed, symbolizing a sword of judgment, meaning this sword is revealing our Lord's deadly power. During his first coming, he spoke words of comfort and grace. This time, he speaks words of death. Each word that will proceed out of his mouth will bring death and destruction upon all those who have been insulting the bride of Jesus Christ throughout all the ages. Let's review the two battles. This is the first of two battles. 
The first battle is to chain Satan's forces and place them in the pit while setting up for the thousand-year reign of Christ. The second is after he is released from the pit, which is after judgment, which we also call the Battle of Armageddon. However, the first battle is not much of a battle. In Christ's second coming, he observes Satan preparing for a war, which quickly becomes mute. Jesus seizes the beast, Satan, and the false prophet and throws them into the pit, which removes his power from Jesus' next move. Through a simple method used by God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, Jesus then brings down every nation and their people, the stern, swift judgment that marks the onset of Christ's kingdom will be the method of his rule throughout the millennial reign of Jesus. As the scripture states, he will rule the nations with, quote, an iron rod. Read more about that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. During this time, he will swiftly judge all sin and instantly put down any rebellion. Plus, With Satan and the false prophet being chained and bound, the remaining masses cannot be empowered by evil to form rebellions. All people will be required to conform to God's law while being judged for breaking it. Now let's look at no weapons for the armies. Another significant point here is the armies that accompany Christ, when he returns, carry no weapons. Jesus alone wields the sword with which he will slay the wicked. Another critical point, God feeds creation, the birds, with flesh of the wicked. God calls it the Great Supper of God. Let's take a look at that passage. It says, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Now you would think that these warriors of the king of Babylon would get a clear picture that they are about to have their rumps kicked. But no. The scripture I stated all-inclusively states the great reveal of the entire world's extent of the slaughter and that their unburied bodies are left as food for the birds. An act that certainly was reserved for the arrogant kings and their mighty commanders. Not only that, this indignity act awaits all the proud who resisted and hated God through the ages. Finally, since Satan and his false prophet were bound before Christ released his wrath, these kings and their people were 100% defenseless. This is the reason the armies of God his angels, did not need 
any weapons. You probably have figured out by now that Christ simply opens his mouth and sends the beast and false prophet to the pit of hell, the lake of fire that burns eternally. As for the rest of the wannabe followers, they had to die by the sword from the mouth of our blessed Redeemer, for he had to feed the birds of the air as he had promised. For those of you who are hoping for a Hollywood-style fight, sorry. That kind of war requires laborious work and is saved for the Battle of Armageddon. This particular war is fought with the spoken word of Christ. God spoke creation into existence and he closes creation with the same method of power, his spoken word. Since Jesus understands the limited power his father gave Satan, he knows he had to be bound before addressing Satan's followers. So, he bound his two foes, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, which is the spirit of the Antichrist. With the two forces out of the way, the followers had no power to tap leaving the remaining to attempt to fight Christ with the flesh of man. And as we know, man's efforts are as impotent as can be when faced with the hand of God. The first battle was over before it started. Looking at an obvious question here, it is certainly one question that should come to mind. If Jesus destroys or kills all the wicked during this time, how is it that there are remaining people for the final judgment? Well, the key here is all must die before judgment. The thousand-year judgment is strictly for the second death, eternal damnation. All of the dead will return for the reign of Christ, both in Christ and Satan. Each will be lined up, one by one, to answer for the sins committed against the living God. However, the saints, who are marked with God's number, will be excused. Their sins are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, those who refuted the mark of God, refusing Christ's indwelling life, are judged condemned, and sentenced to their second death, which is eternal damnation. In conclusion, hell and damnation have always existed, but our passage reveals it in its final form. Hades, for example, which is hell, but its title before judgment. It was temporarily a holding tank for the rebellious. Hell, on the other hand, is the place of second death, the final and permanent dwelling for all haters of God and the fake wannabe Christians. These soul-awakening sober truths serve as a warning to unbelievers or followers of Christ who refused the indwelling life of Jesus. 
While our passage today should shake the foundation of the depraved, it will not. It should be clear by now that no matter how much of the power and acts of God poured out on humanity, the masses always wake up the next day deceived and still rebellious. This reminds us that unless the Holy Spirit fills the hearts of humanity, the people remain stupid. Coming up next, number 66, which is dealing with the devil and those that follow him. We're going to be speaking out of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. By now you should know in chapter 19 we saw the great white horse and his rider. And in this chapter we see the white throne of judgment and the balancing of moral scales. As a reminder, Christ is here on the earth, has removed the beast and false prophet by throwing them into the lake of fire. And now we start this wonderful chapter with Christ binding and sending Satan to the pit for a thousand years. He is removing all distractions and potential conflict as he sets the stage for his judgment. Before we get into commentating on chapter 20, we need to address a common factor that Christians struggle with reading the final two chapters of Revelation. Why? Because of fear. This is why it's going to be critical for us to address the issue of fear, not only for the people that are going to be facing the moments before final judgment, but for you today dealing with fear so you can be blessed with these two final chapters which I consider two of the most glorious chapters in the entire Bible. Until next time!